One more passage, First uh, Samuel tonight, First Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. First Samuel 16, 1 through 7. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, where I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go when Saul hears of it? He will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The word of the Lord. You know, uh, I was talking to uh, Brian the other day, Mr. Blacklock, and um, we were talking about the fact that before there is hope before there is redemption before there is salvation many times it gets really black (laughs) i mean it's really black and then comes the salvation and we can see that in the very first verse of the bible in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and then it was dark and then god spoke and it was light and we can go to the exodus of god's people and god hears his people weeping in exodus chapter 2 And God raises up Moses, and it gets worse at first. And then it gets better, because God raises his people up out of Egypt. And during the times of the judges, which we're at right here in 1 Samuel, it was very dark. And God raised up Hannah, that barren woman who had no child. She begins to cry out to God for a son. God gives her a son. She gives her Samuel. He gives her Samuel. And Samuel begins to preach the word of God, and there's light in the world. But now Saul is not obeying God's word. And it's dark in Jerusalem. It's dark there in, among God's people. And Samuel is mourning over what Saul is doing. And so he needs hope. And the first point tonight, what I want to give to you is this. The word of God brings hope in your mourning. Here's the man of God. He is down. Is he down for the count? He's weeping. And some commentators, they smite Samuel on the cheek for this morning. They say he should not be mourning. They say that when we hear God say to him, How long will you grieve over Saul? That he he shouldn't be grieving. But we need to ask ourselves the question, Why is this man of God mourning? Is this man of God mourning because his baseball team didn't make it to the playoffs? 
I mean, is this is this man mourning? Now, listen, I told I told email this morning. I said, is, is this man mourning because he dropped his phone in the toilet? He said, I would probably mourn over that. But this man's not mourning on his over his phone being dropped in the toilet. He's mourning over King Saul. Saul has rejected the word of the Lord. And in rejecting the word of the Lord, he's rejected the Lord himself. And now God is rejecting him from being king. And Saul is and Samuel is mourning over this. And Jesus put it like this: Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This man needs some comfort. And his mourning began in chapter 15, verse 11. And then we find him continuing to mourn over Saul's disobedience in verse 35. And then we come to verse 1, we see it continues. Mourning. Mourning over a man who began well. Mourning over a man who was humbly found by the baggage when they anointed him to be the king over all Israel in front of all the people. Samuel has invested a lot of time in this man and now King Saul has become a man of polite rebellion. He's not submitted to the word of the Lord. And so even though as we looked at last week, he, we had Saul, he brought all those animals from the Amalekites that were supposed to be put to death. He may have fooled, he may have looked good in front of all the elders and all the people of Israel, but it was a stench in God's eyes, in God's nostrils. Samuel's mourning over this polite rebellion He's mourning over the fact that he's invested in this man's life. He's mourning over the fact that there's no king over Israel who walks with God. And there's no leadership. And we could even say, will Israel self-destruct? Will, let's just take for instance the Philistines. Will they take Israel over and make them their vassal? He's worried about all, all of these things. And he needs comfort. In verse 16, I mean chapter 16 verse 1 says this. The Lord said to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among the sons, his sons. So God tells him to get up. I have a king. And this means that Israel will not self-destruct. This means that God's people will have someone to rule and reign over them and be their shepherd. As we make applications tonight, think, the Word of God brings hope to you in your mourning. Samuel is mourning over sin. We need to ask ourselves, have I mourned over my own sin? Years ago, the editor, many of you probably heard this before, but the editor of the Times London asked people to respond to this question. They asked this question, what is wrong with the world? And all these people began to respond with all their pontifications on why the world is so bad and why it's going so wrong. And G.K. Chesterton, a famous English writer, he responded with these words, the shortest answer ever written to the editor. Dear sir, I am what is wrong. I am. I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? (laughs) I am. (laughs) I am the one. I am a sinner. I am the one who's in need of a Savior. And if you and I, if we mourn over our sins and if we need a Savior, this is what God says to you today. Just exactly what God said to Samuel in those years gone by. This is what He says to you. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. What? Jesse the Bethlehemite. Yes, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. 
And his name is David, and his greater son is, da- is, is Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life and died on a cross and was raised from the dead for your sins. He is the one who has come to rule and reign over your life and give you hope. Not only do we think about uh, God giving to us hope in our mourning in this way, but he gives hope in our mourning in another way. As we see Samuel, Samuel is mourning. And you and I, we should mourn over not only our sins, but also over this indwelling sin we find in us. Do we ever mourn over this impulse that's in us to be angry? Do we ever mourn over this impulse in us to be impure? Do we find ourselves mourning over our nation's indifference to God? Do we find ourselves mourning over the lack of holiness in our church? You know, it's interesting, you look at Samuel, and Samuel, God has burdened him to mourn over his nation, and burdened him to mourn over the magistrate, and burdened him to mourn over these things. And is God not causing us to mourn over what we see around us? Would God not cause us to mourn over the sin that we see and God would change us and we would pray that God would work in us so that we might share what God is doing in us and uh, seek to bring His Word to this world. It's so difficult. So difficult. We go out and we knock on people's doors and we talk to people about Christ. Nobody's coming, it seems like sometimes to us. It's God burdening us to mourn over those around us so that we might be ready to share Jesus Christ to others and bring them hope. Well, second, the Word of God brings wisdom in our, in our obedience. Notice what it says in verse 2. But Samuel said, How can I go when Saul hears of it? He will kill me. Now, just like the commentators were smiting him on the cheek for being uh, <laughs> for mourning, saying you shouldn't be mourning, here the commentators smite Samuel on the cheek and say he should just charge off and do exactly what God says and set his face like flint and do whatever he has to do. Don't worry about Saul. Shouldn't Samuel be afraid? Should he be afraid? Why should he be afraid? Well, let's think about why Samuel should be afraid. Saul's going mad. I mean, listen, you get to the end of this book, this man is a madman. This man is going mad. He was ready to put his own son to death in chapter 14 for eating a little honey with his sword. This man has disobeyed God. This man rejected the Lord, and now the Lord's rejecting him, and he knows there's another man in the wings over here ready to take his place. And if Saul's looking for anything, Saul's looking for Samuel to do something, he's looking for him to maybe anoint somebody, he's watching, he's going to check it all out and guarantee, I guarantee you he'll get the the news back on the grapevine if Samuel does anything uh, about anointing somebody to be a king. So this is legitimate fear. And so we see here that God gives him the wisdom of what, I would call tonight concealment. The wisdom of concealment. Samuel is to go to Bethlehem and he's to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. But notice what God tells him to say in verse 2. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. That's what he's to say. 
You're not to tell the elders. You're not to tell Jesse. You're not to tell the people the main purpose for which you have come. You are to conceal the main purpose for which you have come. And while you are there, you are to sacrifice. You are to invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And you will anoint for me the man that I designate for you to anoint. And look at verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said. And so now he's armed with this wisdom, and he goes out and he does the next right thing. And upon his arrival, remember he arrives, and this is not, uh, as I understand, this is not his circuit. Bethlehem is not his normal circuit. And so he comes to Bethlehem, and all the elders are going, oh no, what's this guy doing here? This is a little scary. Has he come to point out somebody who's in sin? (laughs) That can happen. Or has he come and if we side with Samuel, will Saul know that we've sided with Samuel against him and will Saul come and kill us? And so they're saying, do you come in peace? And Samuel replies, in peace. <laughs> I have come to what? To anoint the king? No, I've come in peace to sacrifice to the Lord. So he tells them to consecrate themselves for the sacrifice And then they also consecrated Jesse and the sons along with him. And they were also invited to the sacrifice. This is the wisdom of concealment. Now some people may call what what, uh, was just uh, Samuel told the elders in Bethlehem. They may call it lying. But here's the question. Who told him this? Who told him to say this? If you want to call it a lie, who told him to lie? The one who told him to say this is God himself, and God never lies. He endorses this, and it's not a lie. Rather, it's concealment. This is at no time untruth. This is what John Murray writes in the Principles of Conduct. There was no untruth in what the Lord authorized. This incident makes clear that it is proper under certain circumstances to conceal or withhold part of the truth. Saul had no right to know the whole purpose of Samuel's mission to Jesse, nor was Samuel under obligation to disclose it. Concealment was not lying. Concealment is necessary to guard jealously the distinction between partial truth and untruth. There's a great wide gulf between concealment and speaking what is false. And this vital distinction is something that we need to master in our lives so that we might be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. You and I are not under the obligation to tell everybody everything on the inside of us. That's a really big lesson to learn. Mm, I could tell y'all some stories because I just used to say way too much. And I hurt for it. I hurt for it. Well, let's make a few applications. A knock comes on the door of a German couple who's uh, hiding... Uh, some Jews in a special closet built for uh, taking care of these Jews. The Gestapo comes in and says, do you have Jews here? And they say, no, we do not have any Jews here. Please feel free to look around. They are under no obligation to tell them this. They have no obligation to tell them. uh, They're not obligated to tell wicked people who are going to use this truth in a way that will cause somebody to die. They are no, under no obligation for that. And so they, can, they don't have to necessarily tell them everything. Does the United States tell everybody where the missile silos are? We know we have them. 
You've been at work all day. Here's a, here's a good one. You've been at work all day. Your boss comes up and he does something to you early in the morning. You, it causes you to be resent, resentful toward him. I mean, you are upset at him. And at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you've been going at it since 8. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he comes up to you and says, How's it going? You're supposed to go, I'm so full of resentment for what you said to me. No, you don't owe him. You don't tell him your sinful thoughts. You say, you know what? I was just thinking it was so good that I have a job. And you're so thankful for your job, aren't you? Don't you need to provide for your family? You don't tell people your sinful thoughts that you're struggling with. You tell them to God. And if you need a minister to tell them to, you have one, or you have elders, or you have a mommy or a daddy. And you tell those things to your mama, your daddy. I always thought it was very interesting talking about Martin Luther. Martin Luther never said that penance was a, uh, or confession was a sacrament, but you know, he always had somebody he confessed his sins to. It's not a bad idea to have a person. But we don't tell everybody our sinful struggles. We're doing this all the time with our children. Our children come up to us and say, Mommy, Daddy, where do babies come from and what do we say? Do we tell them everything? No, we say what they need to know. <laughs> we say, hey, they come from a mom. God gives them to moms and dads who love each other. Let's say that you want to go look for a new job. So you arrange to take the day off. You're going to go and interview for this job. You take your wife. You're going to go out to eat. Right before you leave on Thursday, your boss comes up and says, What are you going to do on your day off? Well, I have these aspirations to get out of this job and go to another one. No. No, you don't. You say, I'm going to take my wife out downtown, out of town, and we're going to go out and eat. And you don't tell them necessarily everything. If you get my drift, those are some of the problems I had when I was around 34 years old. God himself conceals matters. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. William Blakey in the 1800s writes, God's providence is like a spider's web. God concealed from Job chapters 1 and chapters 2. He didn't know about the courtroom. He didn't know about Satan. He didn't know all of these things that God was permitting Satan to test, to test him. The Lord Jesus, he concealed from the Syrophoenician woman what he was going to do until the bitter end. And Jesus conceals what he was going to do for Lazarus after he died. And he went in there and he raised him up for his own glorious ends. Now let's look at the flip side of this for a second. William Blakey writes, To conceal what you are, no, are, are under no obligation to reveal when some important end is to be gained is acceptable. But when concealment is practiced in order to take an unfair advantage of anyone or to secure an unworthy advantage over him, this is a detestable crime. And so this is the flip side of it. In other words, you and I can't use concealment to break a commandment, right? So um, if somebody uh, is going to sell a car, you have to tell them about the defect, defects of the car. Because if you don't tell them all the defects in the car, you're like taking money out of their pocket. You're stealing. You're violating the Eighth Commandment. And young people, you can't use concealment. From your parents. You owe your parents all the truth. <laughs> you owe your parents the truth. And so if you are told to come home one night 
And then they, they ask you, so what did you do after you came home and you went to Tim and you went to Tiffany's house and you only tell them that you went to Tim's house and you don't tell them that you went to Tiffany's house? That's not concealment. That's lying. Okay? So we don't, uh, we don't use concealment in order to cover our sin. But the Word of God at times brings us the wisdom of concealment as we are, in, as we are obeying. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem for the purpose of sacrifice, and he doesn't say what the main purpose is, which is that he is there to anoint the next king of Israel. And this brings also, as we think about the Word of God, it brings wisdom not only of concealment, but it brings us the wisdom that we need to get to the heart of the matter. So everybody is consecrated and prepared for the worship. And Jesse and his sons were there, and they're consecrated and they're present. The sacrifice is made, and before the feast can be uh, had by all the people gathered around, they have to take the animal, and they have to get the cuts of meat that they need from the animal and then prepare. And during this time, Samuel would have had time to take Jesse's sons aside and to see which one God points out to him. Verse 6 says, The first son that came up in front of Samuel was a man named Eliab. And he was probably Jesse's firstborn son. Immediately Samuel said in his heart, Surely, in his heart, remember, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel is there to do the Lord's bidding. And I, I want you to think about him. He's got his horn of oil, kind of like Doc Holliday. He's got his pistol in his hand. He's got his horn of oil. He's ready to pour it out on this guy because this guy is tall. This guy is powerful and stud-like. And just as Samuel's about to take that oil out and pour it on his head, God says this, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now up to this point, we could say that we've, uh, we've kind of said, no, you shouldn't be upset at him for fear, being fearful. We've said that you shouldn't be upset at him for his mourning. But now God corrects him, not me, not a commentator. God corrects him. Samuel, this, listen to this, sage man, godly man. What's he immediately impressed with, folks? He looks at a lie and he goes, that's got to be the one. Sure, I mean, he's wild. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. This is what Davis writes. Y'all listen careful. Eliab was doubtless an impressive hunk of a man. About, around six foot two, perhaps, and about 225 pounds. He met people well, all men, all, all man, but with social grace, excellent taste in aftershave lotion, and so on. Perhaps he starred as the wide receiver for Bethlehem High School football team. Probably he was on the All-Judean All-Star team. Samuel was not alone in his estimate of Eliab. Many thought future was Eliab's middle name. It's so easy to look at the outward appearance. So much here is in the balance. And if anybody's going to get it right, it's got to be Samuel. <laughs> and here we find Samuel is just a man. And apart from God's wisdom here, apart from God telling him here to look at the heart and not on the outward appearance, where are we going, folks? We're going to Act 2, Saul Act 2. Head and shoulders above the rest. 
We're going to a man who is outwardly looks powerful and strong and has a good taste in aftershave lotion. A man whose heart is not completely submitted to God. Now, let's, let's do a little caveat here. And I promise it won't be as long as this morning's. We're not to conclude from verse 7 that God is opposed to outward appearance. Right? I mean, listen. After Eliab comes by, the other six come by, and then he says, are there any other sons? And he says, yeah, there's one out in the field. Remember what Eliab says about him? He's out there with his few sheep. So they bring the runt of the pack in. His name is David, and that's the one that the Lord designates to, to have the oil poured on his head. And so at the end of the day, we read verse 12, and you know what it says about David? It doesn't say he was ugly. It says he's ruddy. He had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome in form and appearance. Uh, we, we just, uh, I, I don't know if we're going to start watching them again, but we uh, watched Pride and Prejudice recently. And I always love what Jane Austen said. He had a pair of fine eyes. That's a great line, isn't it? He had a pair of fine eyes. David had a pair of fine eyes. In the King's English, he says, he was goodly to look at. Being a, being a knockout or being handsome is not bad in and of itself. David had good looks. God doesn't choose based on ugliness. But what we're being taught here is that outward appearance doesn't qualify a person and outward appearance doesn't disqualify a person. But what matters is what's on the inside in the heart. The Word of God gives us wisdom here needed to get to the heart of the matter. And you and I, we need to be reminded of this just like the old prophet did. We're all so prone to think that appearance is everything. But God is warning us to look Pass outward appearance and look at the heart. The idolatry of outward appearance is the most extensive practice form of idolatry in the, in the United States or in the world. Botox. And guys, listen, don't be upset. I, I like my wife to have her fingernails done. But it's all, have you been around? It's augmentations, hairdos. We, we have our tags on the outside of our clothes today instead of on the inside because we want everybody to know what we're wearing. What's up with that? It's not about what we wear, according to God. It's what's on the inside of our hearts. Let it ring in your ears. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks in the heart. And God would have us repent of this sin and always be thinking about the heart of the matter. In all our decisions, we need God's wisdom to get to the heart of the matter. If we choose a, a pastor... We got a church looking for a pastor. Look for the right heart. Don't look for the man who presents well. Don't look for the man who meets people well. Don't look for the man who has the best aftershave. Look for the heart. Does this man love God? Does this man care about people? Does this man pray and does he care about his wife? When you're looking for an employee, when you're looking for a husband or for a wife, 1 Samuel 16, 7. 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, for the heart that is willingly submitting to the Word of God. Well, if you persist in this kind of thinking, then you're in danger for your souls. Think about the Pharisee of Jesus' day. What were they concerned about? They stand on a street corner to be seen. They pray on the street corner to be heard. They want people to applaud them for all that they do, all the giving that they do. We could go through all the things they do, but they forgot their hearts. 
And Jesus is looking for a heart that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He's looking for somebody who knows they don't have a good heart and ask him for a new heart. Am I asking for that heart? Well, let me end with this. Hard hard not to think about this. The wisdom of God, it provides for us, the, the Word of God provides wisdom for concealment, wisdom that we need to get to the heart of the matter, and the wisdom that we need to get to the heart of worship. You know, I grew up in a church and we were very focused on outward, external things. Everything was scripted, everything was so, had to be so well done. And I love for everything to go flowing smoothly along. I'm sure you all do too. We want all our elements to flow with ease and perfection. But then a baby cries. (laughs) Or then Mr. Samuel, who sits over here in California, yells at you. And we all let it go. You know why? Because this man's had a stroke. What's the heart of the matter when it comes to worship? Are we upset when the pianist misses misses a note? Are we upset when the preacher mispronounces a word? What's the heart of the matter? Is it perfection when the baby does not cry and imperfection when the baby does cry? What is the heart of worship? Is it when the pianist never makes a mistake and the preacher never makes a mistake? Or is a mistake okay? Well, isn't perfect worship when we come here And we give our hearts to God. Isn't it perfect when we come here and let Mr. Samuel do what he does and let babies cry and we worship God with all our hearts, minds, soul, and strength? When we hold nothing back, when we understand we're unworthy and we mourn over our sins, but we find in in Jesus Christ our Savior, isn't that perfect worship? When we long for mercy and we know that God smiles on us and accepts us in Jesus. When we know that we have hope and we know that we have wisdom just like Samuel and we see light before we leave worship. Isn't perfect worship when we sing praise to God and give Him what He deserves and we know that He's with us? Isn't perfect worship when we love each other and when we hear uh, Bear with each other and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things. Isn't that perfect worship? I love it when it's flawless, but when is it going to be flawless? It's not going to be flawless. Worship from the heart. Giving yourself to God. That's what He loves. Well, the Word of God brings you hope and comfort in your morning. The Word of God brings to you wisdom in your obedience. And that wisdom will give you the ability to know what to say and when to say it. And God's wisdom will give you the ability also to enter into the heart of what true worship is, which is from inside of us as we give ourselves to God. Let's pray. Father, we end on this note about worship and Lord we would pray that our worship tonight would be in spirit and in truth from the heart cries or no cries mispronounced words or not but Lord that we would be giving ourselves completely to you 
we pray, praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that he's our sa- the Savior of our souls. We praise you that he cares for us, that our sins are pardoned, that he protects us and provides for us. We praise you for the wisdom that we have as we walk with him. We ask, Lord, that you will give us this wisdom throughout this week, that we might be lights, we might be the salt we need to be in our world, in our homes, in our, in our world. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us to pray for each other, that we might walk according to your ways. And we ask, Lord, that even as we put our heads on our pillows tonight, that we would prepare to worship you from our hearts next Sunday morning and Sunday night. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.